Hello, my name is John Hamel. Welcome to the Association of Domestic Violence Intervention Programs ongoing series of podcasts on Intimate Partner Violence, or IPV. The Association of Domestic Violence Intervention Programs, more commonly known by its acronym ADVIP, is an international organization of better intervention programs and mental health professionals who provide treatment for perpetrators of IPV, as well as researchers with an expertise in the field. The purpose of ADVIP is to advance evidence-based practice and lower rates of intimate partner violence in our communities. In this podcast series, various experts offer their thoughts, research findings, and clinical experience on topics related to the causes, characteristics, consequences, assessment, and treatment of IPV. Podcast number one and additional selected podcasts are available for free to everyone. Others are free only to ADVIP members. To join ADVIP, go to www.domesticviolenceintervention.net and click on the Join ADVIP link on our homepage. Again, go to www.domesticviolenceintervention.net. Thank you for listening. Oh, this is John Himmel of the Association of Domestic Violence Intervention Programs. Uh, today, I'm going to be speaking with uh, Shelley Wagers, who is a uh, associate editor with the journal Partner Abuse. Uh, Shelley is going to talk about recent trends in research on domestic violence and applications to uh, perpetrator programs. Uh, Dr. Shelley Wagers is an assistant professor of criminology at University of South Florida, which is a highly ranked preeminent institution. She's worked in the field and researched domestic violence for over 20 years. Her research focus is the intersection of theory and practice of domestic violence in the criminal justice systems and programs such as batter intervention programs. Dr. Wages has published numerous research articles in several top-ranked journals, including our own journal, Partner Abuse, authored several book chapters and prepared multiple technical reports for various local and state organizations nationally. Dr. Wagers regularly presents her research and she is often requested to provide continuing education training to criminal justice professionals. Welcome to the podcast, Shelley. How are you today? Thank you, John. I'm, I'm doing well. So uh, tell me a little bit more about your background and experiences in the field of uh, uh, domestic violence. I think it's unique in some ways. Yes, um, I do think it's unique, and I talk to many groups about my background, and I usually start with it because it's varied, and I believe I come from multiple perspectives. So my career started in the 90s. I had a public health education degree, and I worked for a nonprofit organization and was part of the early changing of the laws in Florida. And this was the time when we were looking at mandatory and preferred arrest first coming to bear and criminalizing domestic violence and how to write it into statutes. And I worked for a feminist uh, organization that primarily serviced victims and advocacy, but they also ran better intervention programs. And I was there when Duluth first came in and introduced their models and power and control wheels. So this is kind of my early learning, I would say, an introduction to domestic violence. And I 
prepared and developed multiple uh, prevention programs for high schoolers and middle schoolers on healthy relationships and how to prevent domestic violence. So I did that for multiple years, but I, my father had been a police officer and I'd always been interested in law enforcement. And I was given the opportunity to be sponsored and go into law enforcement with the local agency. And when I'm in groups, I always make the joke because, you know, at the time in early 2000s, late 1990s, law enforcement and domestic violence advocates were getting along so well, right? <laughs> if we think back. <laughs> but <laughs> I went into law enforcement and I remember at that time a really big debate or issue was there was a lot of antagonism between advocates and law enforcement was more the focus than courts like we see today. And there was this belief that when officers would say, well, I don't see those dynamics because we were training at that time, dynamics of domestic violence, looking for primary aggressor and battering. We, at that time, were acknowledging both males and females could be victims or offenders, but it was still very much heavily focused that it was most likely a male offender and a female victim. And we weren't really acknowledging these dynamics past intimate partners yet, uh, in, you know, throughout the whole family. So when I went onto the road and I was at an agency that was really progressive, they actually had a civilian domestic violence advocate that worked in the agency and we had a mandatory arrest policy. I got out of training and I'm on the road and here I was this feminist trained kind of advocate and I went, these things don't fit. As I saw it in the real world, these arguments other officers had made were true. They weren't always, they just didn't get it or um, wanted to dismiss you know, dismiss domestic violence, which had been historically done, it was there truly was no primary aggressor or both were aggressive or there wasn't a pattern of like battering as we had come to know it. But you were sitting here as this officer being told you have to arrest. And oftentimes I would have to arrest a victim. And the reason was People don't understand when we turned to the criminal justice system and made these laws, even though I agree it should be criminalized, the system doesn't work well for this type of crime or violence to address it. And it doesn't allow for the nuances and complexities that are within a domestic violence relationship and how you address it. So if an officer has a mandatory arrest policy I'm looking at a black and white criminal statute and I'm saying, where's my evidence today? And if my evidence today is that victim struck first and I have injury on the other person, even though I know this person maybe has been beaten multiple times on other occasions because I've been at the house, I now have to arrest that person today. Yeah, and that, and that, and yeah, that, go, that, that well, that goes for both male and female perpetrators Correct. because you know, uh, it's often it's often brought up by battery intervention providers and advocates that a lot of the women who are enrolling in battery intervention programs have been seriously abused by either their current or previous partners, and uh, like you say, they this is the one time that they are uh, that they initiated the violence, whereas previously they had been seriously abused. Well, the men often say the same thing. They'll say, you know, she used to pound on me constantly. I never called the police. And this one time, 
she grabbed me and I just shoved her across the room. So and what we usually, usually tell the guys is, well, okay, but you're responsible for your violence and why didn't you call the police or, you know, why didn't you uh, try to take some steps to, you know, get counseling or find some other intervention in your relationship, right? So it's interesting that with, um, with um, there's, there's less discussions around the fact that men uh, in matter intervention programs also have been victimized. Uh, it may just be that uh, maybe with men that if you start talking about previous violence, somehow it maybe it sounds like we're blaming the victim at that point um, uh, or we're not holding them accountable. I'm not sure what it is, but um, but I, you know, in our batter intervention programs here in California, we have the same approach to defend to these defendants, these male and female perpetrators across the board. It's the same thing. We, we tell them you're responsible for your behavior. So you have, if you're a victim, uh, either leave the relationship, seek, seek services, but taking the law into your own hands is not, you know, it's not, it's not very useful. Right. And so what, what started to happen with me and, and this is why I say my background is interesting is because as an officer, I'm looking at all these intersections, right? So I had my prior training, I had staunchly believed, but I'm looking at these cases and some of the ones that would, and every state has the way their domestic violence laws are written are different as to who they could affect within the family unit. And I've learned that from being located in different states. But as I was looking at these cases, a great example was I had an individual and it fell under the family violence law. She was a, a daughter and I, she, the mom had actually hit her that day and she was elderly. And I was arresting an elderly woman because I had this mandatory arrest policy. Yeah. When it was obvious the daughter had multiple issues with drugs or other things, but had been viol the violent one in the past. But that day I was having to take the mother in because whatever evidence I was looking at. And so as I've grown and then after I was an officer for a while, I saw these differences and I had always wanted to go to graduate school and be an educator. And I just left sooner rather than later and went to get my Ph.D. And I decided to do it in criminal justice because I, I love criminal justice, but I studied domestic violence as part of that. So I have my criminology degree and I've always looked at this intersection, but what's, what I find interesting when we look at BIP programs or other things is many of the people working in this arena have little to no understanding truly of nuances in our system or criminological theories or other things that domestic violence laws were based on in some way. But from a criminology perspective, we could go, well, we knew that wouldn't work um, because that is not a strong theory in criminology. And we're seeing this kind of backlash downfall now, I think, as the cases move through the system. So when I was an officer, I went in and um, said, I don't think these cases always fit. And it was interesting because they fit about 25% of the time. But then as I went into grad school and I started reading the literature and learning more about, in the varied literature, I read cross, because I'm a criminologist, I read cross-discipline. I read sociological, I read feminist, I read criminology, I read psychology literature. 
literature. So yeah. I very cross-discipline yeah. read mm -hmm. on this subject. And I think that's what makes my background different. I, I was an advocate. I was an officer. And now I'm a researcher, but I pull in the varied background. And so that usually makes my lens wider than many people I've found over the years and how I approach looking at and trying to first understand violence and domestic violence and the nuances and the varied types we know exist now from our research, but right. also the intersection of that empirical research in the development of how we've criminalized domestic violence and where some of those policies and programs are working and not working or are very ineffective or not effective. And a lot of that goes to, it's just those things you were mentioning, John, the complexities behind violence, um, all forms of violence that occur within human nature and within a domestic relationship can be so broad. But the mistake we made was when we looked at domestic violence, we took all of that and said it all should fit one type. And what we've learned over the 20 years that I've been in this field is it doesn't. We, we, we have so many different types and needs and our kind of one size fits all approach doesn't work. And that's where I see we are today. So um, what I'd like you to do at this point, uh, Shelley, if you're in agreement, is to kind of give us a broad overview of uh, current research on domestic violence uh, and how our general policies uh, are working or not working in terms of lowering rates of domestic violence in our communities. That's, that's the goal. We all have the same goal to reduce domestic violence in our communities, um, and that would include... Um, incarceration, it would include prevention programs, it would include better intervention programs, it would include mental health treatment and so forth. So just in terms of where we are um, in the United States today, as, as far as uh, you know, general public policy, what's, what seems to be working and what seems to need to be uh, reformed? It sounds like you already have kind of indicated that you feel that the criminal justice system probably needs to be reformed to some extent. So would you talk about that? Yeah. And I, I, when I look at when you're talking about policies or where, where we need to reform, I kind of approach it from two directions. And one is how is our theoretical scientific knowledge changed over 20 years and how well are we using the current knowledge within our policies? So what I've seen happen with policies and domestic violence, whether we're talking prevention because uh, I did that work for a lot of years, or the criminal justice system, is m more so in the criminal justice system than prevention today. We still have them based in our uh, what I call our original knowledge. And our original knowledge from the 80s, 90s was very limited. This was a new phenomenon as far as how it was studied. It was um, there were a lot of political clashes and debates across different types of researchers, and we spent a lot of time early on arguing the semantics of the research to say who was right or wrong, and it took us until probably the last ten years for there to start to become some agreement. Yet I still think there's still a lot of disagreement, but some agreement that 
there are multiple types of violence. But many of our policies today are still based on this early knowledge or early mantras. But you mean you mean when uh, when the police started to take domestic violence seriously and began responding to calls by women who had a history of serious violence against them? Yes. So what I, I see is our early knowledge as being that early knowledge that came out at Duluth. So if we look in the 70s and 80s, police, criminal justice, we really didn't have laws protecting um, individuals within a family unit. And I still would say with child abuse, it's limited, right? We see this family as this private sphere. So the battered women's movement pushed forward and said, we need to notice this and we need to make it a crime. And because it hadn't been criminalized and because of culture, even though you trained law enforcement, they weren't initially arresting. And so then we passed policies for mandatory arrest. But we've also seen the the preferred um, and mandatory no-drop prosecution in the criminal justice system. But if you look at our state of knowledge today, because we can fast forward now, our assessments of those policies, we're finding there's been, they have not been very effective. And even from a feminist perspective, there's been a lot of unintended consequences and harm to victims from some of those policies. But our state, we're kind of at this state where we're like, but now what do we do then? Because if these aren't as effective as we want, or they um, cause harm in some ways, we can't get rid of them because it's still criminalized and we need something. But what do we do? And that's where I see our current state within the system is kind of this. When I talk to law enforcement officers and state attorneys, they're at this frustration place of we, no matter what we do, we've been, we've been doing what we're supposed to do for a period of time in their mindset. And we see no reduction in our community and they're kind of, 15 years ago, they wouldn't be, hey, Dr. Wagers, come in and sit down and tell me how I should do this as a cop. Now they are because they're going, they feel like they just keep putting a Band-Aid. Like no matter what they do, a certain percentage of their calls, their cases, nothing changes. It's kind of flat. Does that make sense? It's stagnant. Nothing's reducing. Well, so so could you be more specific, Shelley, about... Um... What are the unintended consequences of some of these policies? You mentioned mandatory arrests, and you also mentioned no-drop prosecution. I've written quite a bit about this, um, and I, I, know, I know what you're talking about, but for the benefit of our listeners, what are some of the unintended consequences? We know that it's good to arrest bad guys and bad gals, but, uh, but it doesn't always work out. So what are some of the, the, the things that, you know, kind of gone wrong with these policies? Well, a couple of things that went wrong with these policies. So if you, if you want, I always say, take the lens, whose lens do you want to take, right? So if we took the feminist lens and said, what went wrong with these policies, many would say they disempower the victim, which that's counter to what advocacy is. They also saw, especially with no drops, an increase in prosecution of what they felt were truly the victim, which we do see that in general, because you take the discretion away from the state attorney. We also saw an, an inf- now if you go from a criminal justice perspective, which is different from an advocate, when you have a, like a mandatory arrest policy, 
and all officers are doing it, you now spike an influx of cases into the court system. Right. And, and then when you spike that, the court system doesn't have a way to manage those cases. The court system, state attorneys, judges are the hardest group for us to educate, to get access to, to educate and understand domestic violence. So you have a lot of misunderstanding in how they do the plea bargains, what they order them to, don't order them to. And this is like varied across states where it's even hard to do research to compare across states what's more effective because it's been so grassroots. For example, you know, being in BIP, every state has different lengths of BIP. They have different curriculums, requirements to be a provider, right? So so then what you also have happening is the state attorney, where are we going to put all these people? So now we go to corrections, right? So you get this influx. So then a, a state attorney, when they have a case, they're trying to assess, can I prove this beyond a reasonable doubt? And in a lot of domestic violence cases, we don't have good evidence. Now, some people would argue that's because we haven't trained our officers or they need more training, but sometimes there really just isn't a lot of evidence either in these cases. Right, that's right. And and so the state is faced with, okay, if I file... Like if I, so no drop basically means, or, you know, victimless prosecution, I have to file even if a victim doesn't want to participate. A lot of uh, lay people outside of the system interpret that as like, they're supposed to now prosecute a hundred percent of the cases. And what I've seen also happen is a clash between advocates and state attorney's offices. So instead of building a coordinated response, you have all this kind of infighting. But the literature would show you the unintended consequences have been disempowering of the victims. Oftentimes, victims are receiving um, negative consequences through the, the system or inadvertent negative consequences, even if they don't want to participate. I've seen some literature that even says it could put them in more danger in certain cases if they're not receiving services and safety. The thought was, the original thought behind it was if the state is doing it, the offender won't blame the victim and then go after the victim. But we still regularly see the offender calling the victim from jail. They're still threatening and coercing. When you have true battery, you know, the victim to not prosecute. And so those are some of the unintended consequences to where now even many of the feminist researchers are saying this hasn't been, you know, very good policy, but you would still see within that literature, John, a mix across those researchers. Yeah. Right. So on the one hand, you have Linda Mills, who has very strongly argued uh, for uh, reforming these policies altogether because they really disempower victims. And then there are others right. who kind of like the idea of the of the prosecutors, uh, you know, protecting these women against themselves. And one of the other uh, obvious negative consequences of these policies, which is not often discussed, is the civil rights of individuals who are, right. are falsely arrested. Now, yes. uh, of course, victims advocates, it's their job to advance the interests of victims. But when you advocate for mandatory arrest policies, uh, you have to know that the less discretion the police have, then the more the more likely it is that at least some of the people that are being arrested uh, are, are falsely arrested, or they, or they shouldn't have been arrested in the first place. The advocacy movement has tried to convince us that 
anytime a woman calls the police, she's automatically should be believed. She's a victim. On the other hand, if she retracts later, well, then she should be believed for that. It's, it's, right. She should always be believed, which, is, which of course, is, is uh, uh, not tenable because if she, you know, you can't believe two different opposite statements, right? But beyond right. that is, uh, yeah, is the assumption that when someone calls the police, they call the police because they're actually being victimized. But that's not the case. We know that's not true. For example, right. this feminist literature, uh, which uh, in support of the predominant aggressor policies, uh, showing at least anecdotally that a lot of the a lot of uh, male batterers, uh, some of them anyway, it's hard to quantify, uh, would call the police on their partners as a way to control them. And so w one of the reasons put forth for for having these so-called predominant aggressor law, uh, guidelines is that there are men who call the police on their partners and they're really not the victims of the perpetrators. Well, women call the police for the same reason, some of them. And sometimes people call the police because they just want a referee. They want someone to come in. They think the police aren't going to arrest. They're just going to come in and talk to their partner. And so in those cases, there may not have been a crime or it may not have been a serious crime. And what I'm finding out, and I've known, kind of known this over 30 years, just working with both male and female offenders, is that if someone calls the police and they really aren't the victim or they're a co-perpetrator, when the police show up, that individual has every reason to to lie or to distort the truth, right? Because nobody wants to be arrested. But victims advocates seem to believe that anyone who calls the police, if it's female in particular, must be a victim. So they refer to these individuals who have never been not, never been tried in court. These individuals are referred to as perpetrators when it's never been adjudicated, right? So right. in other words, they have this a priori assumption that if a woman calls the police, she must be a victim. If a male calls the police, he may be a victim or he may be a perpetrator who's manipulating. And so that's the other side of the coin as far as uh, as far as people's civil rights are concerned. Uh, in addition to this, the feminist concerns that you already enumerated, which I also agree with, by the way. Yeah, well, and I have a, a, a couple interesting points there, too, as you, you were talking, I was thinking about within our system is, as a criminologist, you know, um, what I've started doing in my current research to some extent with, I have two tracks in my research. One is, you know, I've been developing a theory. The other is I do uh, researcher practitioner collaborations to examine things within the communities, right? That's the training and technical reports to yeah. try to advance better policies, right? Wherever I'm living, that's usually where I, I work on those things. And I've been t trying to tell them to take a step back, just like we started here. What's our goal? And so even when we look at these policies, right, I, you know, I'm like, what is our goal behind the policy? So I learned years ago, I was sitting at a table. I was on a task force when I was in Virginia. Um, and there was a victim advocate there. And she was very, very good and very articulate. This was a sexual violence task force. And it opened my eyes because she talked about the intersection between for the sexual violence movement, uh, victim advocates, you know, law enforcement, the courts and therapists. And she talked about how everybody had their own job. And she said, 
her job, she said, so for all of you to understand as a victim advocate, an advocate of victims, my job is to advocate for the victim and their rights no matter what. So even when they don't seem believable, my job is to believe them and advocate for their case, which she said sometimes, you know, is upsetting to police or others because it seems very extreme in some cases or one sided. And that clicked with me, John, because I was like, OK, now I get it what you all are doing. Yeah. And she said, but we all also have a job too, right? And what we have to figure out how to do is meet in the middle on those jobs in some way or cases or how we see things. Um, but the advocate can't stop advocating because as you know, John, we always have a case where we go, oh, that doesn't look that bad. And the next thing you know, someone is killed, right? And right. re remembering the extreme violence that does happen in, in these cases. And so you... You don't want to miss that. And so I appreciate um, the advocates for that because otherwise we might forget the voice. They're on the side of caution, obviously. Right. But what I ask them is that I think we all need to step back and start asking is what are we trying to accomplish here again? And with these policies around the law, okay, yes, it needs to be illegal. I, I totally agree. It's a crime. A battery, but I'm like, battery is illegal no matter what, no matter who you're battering. It should be illegal, right? No matter who you're strangling, this should be illegal. I agree we need some specific domestic violence laws because these are unique relationships. But sometimes when we look at these filing rates or prosecution rates or this or that in cases, I ask people, we have to un look at how domestic violence is different from other crimes. And we're asking, it's like in a, domestic violence, sexual violence, family crimes are kind of anomaly crimes. They're outliers to how our system is structured. That you're asking this major system to understand and bend to and conform to in some way. And when they, you know, talk to me about, well, there's a high level of danger here. Well, I agree. If we're using a danger assessment that's empirical and validated, and we see a high level of danger, when we talk about where to go in the future, that's what we need to start using in the system in these cases. In other words, not our gut, not our, well, in my experience as a 30-year prosecutor, no, the empirical sound tools we've been developing now for 20 or 30 years, you know, John, in your assessment tools, we can get pretty good with some of these assessment tools in predicting the highest uh, lethal cases or predicting the most dangerous cases. But our system is not aware of these tools or using them. And that's that's where the big gap is right now. Well, Shelley, I was going to say, you know, that I, as far as I know, uh, the only state in, in the United States that actually uses an assessment protocol to determine uh, what kind of treatment uh, offenders should be getting is in Colorado, where they use they use a very sophisticated um, assessment system, and and the offenders are depending on their history of violence and their the threat they pose to the victims are uh, referred to either 26 weeks or 52 weeks or even additional counseling. That's the only state, I believe. Right. I think I think another Oregon might be trying it, but um, so we're 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 way behind the research. The policy is way behind the research. It seems to me. 
Yeah. And what I've found, and so when I go to the advocates and I go, okay, you want filing rates to increase. I'm working on that with our local community right now. And I say, why do you want them to increase? What are you, what's supposed to happen when this case gets filed? Well, the victim will be saved. How is the victim? I mean, so to me, John, when I look at where are we today, our state of affairs, right? I think we have this incredible amount of empirical knowledge across multi-disciplines that if we stop arguing and look more at where there is agreement, for example, in theory work, there is agreement that there are multiple types now of domestic violence. Psychologists give them one name, you know, feminists give it another name, but we're in agreement there's multiple types and at least for that. And when I say types, they're the what might be the motivating drives behind the acts of aggression towards that intimate partner and whether it's patterned, right? So we have, and then within that, we have multiple types of offenders. We have some that are truly sociopathic and, you know, chronic. If we look at their whole criminal history, they're chronically violent everywhere. This is not unique. And they might be using, you know, if you want to put quotes around it, power and control or power issues everywhere. Oh. Then we have, right? Absolutely. And they are not, they're not appropriate for BIP groups. They're not. They're a totally, so when we look at violent offenders from a criminal justice perspective versus just domestic violence, we have these different types. Domestic violence offenders could fit within these types as well. We also see... Over time in criminology, and this is where like dating violence is important, there's a natural progression of the use. Men in general, let's say, um, are more inclined to commit certain types of crime that are violent compared to women in general and at certain ages. And you see a natural desistance to that, but not everybody desists. The trauma research that's been coming out in understanding early exposure and based on what age of witnessing violence, the ACE studies. So I'm just, I mean, I could go on and on of this plethora of knowledge we have, but if you go out into the general community and start talking to the practitioners in the trenches, in the fields, whether it's cops, judges, advocates, they know nothing of any of this really. They are still so behind. We have all this knowledge behind what I call our academic walls because we put them in these academic journals, right? And that's why I love partner abuse when you make some of it open access because our goal now, my goal is we need to bridge this gap. We need this knowledge to get to these individuals working in the field every day and let the new knowledge transform the policies to be more effective. All right. So, Shelley, why don't you give us kind of uh, a quick overview of the specific lines of research and knowledge that that academics uh, have uh, have known for a long time and that policymakers and frontline providers need to know? For example, uh, you know, you mentioned there's different types of domestic violence offenders. So how could that knowledge be used to transform public policy? Uh, In other words, what would be implications for public policy, criminal justice responses, and better intervention, and just counseling in general for offenders and and their families 
uh, if this knowledge, uh, current knowledge, was more available? Well, one way I see, John, and I say this to my local community all the time, and for example, motivational interviewing style with the appropriate empirical assessments when a case enters the system. One example, right? So let's say I'm a cop, I go out, I make an arrest. So I have an arrest. Right now in our current system under the policies, the state attorney, the public defender, they plea bargain off of that arrest or make filing decisions without this individual ever being assessed. Okay, they're never assessed what the real underlying problems are. We know within many domestic violence offenders, as well as many non-domestic violence, violent offenders, there's a plethora of underlying comorbid issues generally present within those cases, such as alcohol use is very high and addiction, drug and alcohol addiction, but more alcohol than drugs when we're looking at DV. We also know mental health, anxiety, hyper ADHD, uh, issues with impulsivity control. These things are high within a lot of these offenders. So if we had a system where we went before we make a decision in this case, we are going to send this person to a qualified person who can give similar to what I know you do in your practice. And I've met many other bit providers who have a battery of assessments they use that can, that are empirically sound that measure sociopathy. They measure drug alcohol addiction. They measure all these different comorbid um, issues that could be, either underlying motives for the violence part or contributing to the violence, as well as the tools we have for whether there's high lethality related to domestic violence probability, so we know the risk factors to the victim, and the other tools we have that tell us of if it's battering or ongoing domestic violence that are specific to domestic violence. If we assessed all of that first as our practice and policy and let the clinicians say, here is what I would recommend. So when you talk, for example, John, of civil rights, right? Well, let's say we're in a high felony case and there is the evidence. So we know we need to hold the person because let's say they, um, we had a case here in Florida not too long ago, they had stabbed, stabbed the victim. So that's a felony, right? So, but then they got out on a uh, $5,000 bond, $10,000 bond, which they paid $1,000 because they went to a bonds, bail bondsman, right? Within 24 hours, they went and killed the, the victim. It was a homicide. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk. So the advocates are up in arms, but I'm like, let's look at the system and talk civil rights for a minute, okay? If you look on a public record, the series of this case, he had a history of violating court orders and he had a history of drug and alcohol. He had tons of DUIs violating court orders. So he had a pattern of, I'm going to violate a piece of paper, right? He had a pattern to show violence was escalating. There was evidence in her case he had made threats to kill her and she, you know, everything on a checklist is there. If they had assessed that with a lethality checklist, there could be a way to make a legal argument back to the public defender as to why that in this case we wouldn't be violating their rights to hold them on a higher bond because of this high lethality. We also could have the misdemeanor cases where we do this battery where the clinician says, 
here's what we would recommend. So if you're going to give them a diversion because it's a first time offense, you can't just divert them to BIP. They also need drug, alcohol, this, this, and this before BIP could even be effective or BIP is one piece of a puzzle of treatment this person needs. Or we might even have a person where we go, this is person psychopathic, sociopathic. They're not appropriate for diversion, even though this is the first offense we've caught. And I think we, if we would move more in that direction, we could take the current policies that give us the legal ability, right? The lawful ability to say you're going to be court mandated or I'm going to put a GPS tracker on you while you're court mandated, which that does help victim safety, but divert these individuals to more of the appropriate treatments they need that we know from the literature are part of the violence. It's not as simple as just the violence. It's all these things together. But every case, I know you know this as a bit provider, every case is uniquely different in what they might need and the order it might be best for them. But a, clin a clinician should be making that plan, not a prosecutor or a defense attorney. A clinician should be making the recommendation to the court, in other words. Yeah, I can completely agree. So the, unfortunately, uh, in most states, it's the, the, the criminal justice system has a one-size-fits-all program. The, the BIP program is typically one-size-fits-all. As I mentioned, in, only Colorado has it built in where, where the perpetrators or the would-be perpetrators are, are actually assessed. So, for example, in California, uh, it's a one-size-fits-all approach. So if you're a first-time offender and you push your partner in response to their yelling at you, and there's no injuries, then you refer to a 52-week battery intervention program. Right. If you beat your partner half to death, and this is the fifth time you've done it, and you've been arrested multiple times, you'll probably go to jail. In addition to that, you'll get a 52-week battery intervention program. Right. It's the same. Right. So what's happened in, in California that I've noticed is a lot of the judges are going rogue. Some of these judges, in, in light of mandatory arrest and no-drop prosecution policies, uh, are getting defendants who are coming in, they're first-time offenders with no history of domestic violence, no criminal record, no serious injuries to the victim. And the judges are saying, well, you can do 16 weeks of anger management. This is really upsetting the victim's advocates. So their efforts are concentrated on uh, educating, quote-unquote, these rogue judges. Right. My response to that is, well, I get it. We don't want these judges who know very little about domestic violence and are rotated from courtroom to courtroom, you know, over the lifespan of their of their judgeships. Uh, we don't want them to be making these decisions. We want, as you say, Shelley, we want experienced professionals to make these decisions and uh, about uh, treatment. On the other hand, you can see that these judges are responding to a pro inherent problem in the system. They they know that if uh, they don't assign this, this defendant to 16 weeks of anger management, which may not be enough, right? And it, it may not be enough. It may be unnecessary or it may be too much. If they don't sentence these defendants to 16 weeks of anger management, then these defendants will fall through the cracks. And then right. it could get worse. And the next time they see the defendant, it may have been after a serious injury to the victim. So these are some of the real world consequences of uh, the system not responding to the realities of, of the criminal justice system. And I've been talking about uh, going back to some kind of uh, uh, policy in California where 
you have deferred prosecution. You mentioned deferred prosecution. It was illegal in California until the O.J. Simpson case, and then it's no longer uh, it's no longer useful in, or used in California. So to today, a defendant either is sentenced to the full 52 weeks. In some cases, if there's a rogue judge, you might get 16 weeks of anger management, or typically the case is just dropped. Right. Well, what's interesting, John, is like from all the research in BIPs, which is all over the place, right? And there's arguments there as to its effectiveness or what's effective. What what I've seen in different states, I've been in Florida, Georgia, Virginia, now back in Florida. Um, so California is always more progressed than we are because I'm originally from California. So I have family out there. So I know you guys are always ahead of the curve. Um, but what I've seen is BIPs became like just a dumping ground because here you had these no drops. You had all these misdemeanors coming in. They needed a place to go. Oh, let's, and now what you're even seeing are some of the offenders going 52 weeks of BIP or just serve six months of time. Well, I'd rather just serve six months of time, right? And be done and get out because we have repeat offenders. So when I've been working with the advocates in our local area on some of these policies like you're talking about, it's almost like we've lost sight that the goal has been to eradicate it or reduce it. It's like now it's just all about safety, accountability. And it's like, well, okay, the one thing we know from the literature that's consistent is oversight. We do know that across the literature it shows if there's heavy oversight, at least while the oversight is happening, the likelihood is lower. And heavy oversight is not just an injunction. It's GPS uh, studies are promising or the focused deterrence work they've done in high point or like you're saying in the court system in Colorado where we kind of triage what level they are to know how much oversight. But when they know they're being watched, just like anybody, the majority, not your extreme offenders, that might do a homicide anyway, but the majority are less inclined to recidivate. But that recidivism is still recidivism that they've learned they can get arrested on by the court system, which still doesn't address all the coercive behaviors or assault or something that there isn't physical evidence for us to be able to prove and arrest again. But it, to me, are we even accomplishing victim safety in some form of accountability if we just keep having these revolving doors, does that make sense of the same people, even generationally kind of coming through the system, you know, the criminal justice system cannot address or change a social problem. And I think part of our state of affairs and frustrations we're all running into 20 years later. And I remember this. So when I said in the beginning in the nineties, you know, I'm in my 20s, bright-eyed, I can change the world. And I remember being part of that movement. And I think there was a true hope and belief that if we could just criminalize this and get people to pay attention, it somehow will make it end or reduce. People will do it less. And, you know, looking back, that was a naive hope, criminalizing um, any behavior has never made the behavior less. It's just something our system incarcerates now for. And so I think that's where we're at today is we're being faced with that reality that we criminalized it, 
it didn't really change it. It just because and it didn't change it because criminalizing and the criminal justice system intervening is not a prevention or a way to address the underlying causes of domestic violence. Those are social issues that we need to be dealing with. And now we just kind of have, um, I just see it as the same mantras and kind of patterns and then frustrations and a lot of people going, well, I just don't even know what to do now anymore with this other than we're just maintaining the status quo. And I'm, I think that's sad because I think we have more knowledge today than we ever have if we would start slowly implementing it in pilot studies and evaluating them. I think we really could become more successful at actually reducing it. But we need to recognize in that role of reducing it, the criminal justice system shouldn't be the primary uh, mechanism. It's one piece and it should be used in probably the definitively the more extreme cases for safety where we could have homicide or other things. But when I talk to cops, I'm like, there are programs now like the lethality assessment program out of Maryland and some others that you could use to build from when you are on a call, you could use Arizona's danger checklist actually that they've developed to identify a case. Even if you can't make an arrest and you're on that call and you go, but I know this is domestic violence. I know I'm going to be back, but I don't have evidence today. So I can't make an arrest because it hasn't reached that level of a crime, but I know I'm going to be back. And I know there's a problem in this house. They look at me funny, John, when I go, why can't you make referrals on that? Why can't you do something with that? You're the first ones in as law enforcement. If you're called because of domestic violence and you see an infant that's in dirty diapers and deplorable living conditions, why can't we do, why can't you get that family help and assistance? And what are those in the community? We might break a cycle there, right? Just because you can't arrest or rely on the system to force help doesn't mean some families wouldn't take it if it were offered or presented to them by someone of authority. So thank you, Shelly, for uh, your thoughts. Uh, I'd like to hear more from you. So stick around and we're going to do part two and continue our discussion. Okay.